Church, this is God's Word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, would you stand? To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it addresses us. We thank you for the book of James and what it communicates to us as Christians this day. We thank you for the power of your word that will transform our lives as we spend time in the book of James. Instruct us by your Holy Spirit. Empower the preaching of your word that it might bring edification and encouragement to your body. Father, by your spirit, convict where conviction is needed. I pray that you would lead to repentance where repentance is needed. Sanctify where you need to wash the church with the water of your word, that you may present us splendor and holy and blameless when that day comes. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Well, this morning we begin our sermon series on the book of James. And the title of this sermon is An Introduction to James. If you're new to Trinity, you know, or you don't know this, but our normal diet of God's Word is to preach a book in the New Testament and then bounce back and preach a book in the Old Testament. And you might be wondering why we're preaching through the book of James next. So why are we staying in the New Testament? Well, I can best answer that question with the banana sandwich illustration. How many of you know what a banana sandwich is? <laughs> All right, good, good. Um, it's a sandwich that consists of two slices of bread, slices of banana in the middle. On one slice is peanut butter, and on the other slice is mayonnaise. And it's very, very very good and delicious. Some people think that peanut butter and mayonnaise are the two most opposite ingredients that you can put together on a sandwich. But they actually complement each other really well. They actually balance each other really well. You can't eat a banana sandwich without one or the other. you got to have both. Well, it's the same thing with the book of Galatians and the book of James. When it comes to the topic of faith and works, does James' doctrine of justification contradict Paul's doctrine of justification? For example, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul clearly states that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith 
in Jesus Christ. And we know he means alone in Jesus Christ. He's justified through faith by grace in Christ alone. Then here's James. James clearly states that even Father Abraham himself was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. James chapter 2, verse 21. Look at verse 24. He clearly says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So what's the doctrine of justification that James is seeking to teach us? Is he really contradicting Paul's doctrine of justification? On the contrary, no. James' doctrine of justification actually complements Paul's doctrine of justification. It actually balances out Paul's doctrine of justification very well. Without getting into the technical use of, how, of the word justification the way James does in his book, I'm just going to give you the orthodox interpretation of how James' doctrine of justification works. For instance, Christians are not saved by good works, but they are saved for good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Would you turn with me a few pages to the left of your Bible to the book of Ephesians? Let's look at verses 8 and through 10 of chapter 2. So Christians are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works. I want us to see that. Beginning in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Church, good works are inevitable results of true saving faith. Or justification, the declaration of a person made right before God, is demonstrated by our good works. Genuine faith will produce and will be accompanied by good works. That's what the book of James is about. False faith or dead faith is empty belief like that of the demons. We see this in chapter 2, verse 19 of the book of James. Faith that does not express itself in good works is useless. That's what the book of James is about. We can say that Paul's doctrine of justification is the declaration of our righteousness. And we can say that, that James' doctrine of justification is the demonstration of our righteousness. You see the difference? 
When we are faced with legalism, when, we, when salvation is being based on human good works, we need to hear the voice of Paul louder. And when we think of Christians, that, that in Christianity, good works are not necessary for the, Christians, for the Christians, we need to hear James's voice louder. Our faith is proven and demonstrated by our good works, by bearing good fruit. Good works are fruit of true faith. So the scope of this sermon this morning is broad. This morning we're going to look at the book of James through a broad stroke. We're going to look at the the author of James, who James is. We're going to look into the original audience or the original readers of this letter. And we're going to look at the purpose of why James wrote the book and the occasion of when he wrote the book. Next week, Tim will preach verses 1 through 4. That's the plan. And we will dial in closer exegetically, and we'll look at the book of James verse by verse. So let's dive into the sermon. There are, I have four brief points for us this morning. And so point number one is the author. Who was the author of the book of James? The New Testament lists a few characters with the name James. There is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee. There is James, the son of Alphaeus. We have James the Younger. Was he the author of the book of James? We have James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot. New Testament also lists James, the brother brother of Jude, the author of the book of Jude. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, who later became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So James, the brother of Jude, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, is the same person. Jude is the brother of Christ. Now, James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, if you remember, received the name the sons of thunder. This James was put to death with a sword. King Herod Agrippa had him put to to death, so... He died way too early to be the author of James. James, the son of Alphaeus, could not have been the author of this book because the New Testament doesn't really talk about the life and ministry of James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the younger, was not the author of this book because he was the son of of Mary, the wife of Clopas, and we know very little about the life of James the Younger. We know nothing of James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot. Now, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is well known in the Gospels and also in the book of Acts. The Gospel writers mention him as one of the sons of Mary, the mother of Jesus, This James is the brother of Jude, again, who's the author of the book of Jude. Although the authorship of James has been contested over time, most 
of the New Testament evidences of the authorship of this book points to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And most Bible scholars agree that the author of James is the half-brother of Jesus. This James grew up with his older brother, Jesus. And Jude would have been in that house, too. They ate together with Jesus. They played together with Jesus. They probably did chores together with older brother Jesus. They probably went to the marketplace with Jesus. They probably swam at the Y pool with Jesus. They probably went to Aldi's and Lowe's and Home Depot to, to, to get some supplies with Jesus. Palmers and Jeffrey and I were, were at Nazareth where Jesus grew up. It's a small town. It's amazing how small that town is. If anyone knew Jesus well, James would be one of them. However, James didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was not one of the disciples. John chapter 7, verse 5 says this, For not even his brothers believed in him. But after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus, or James, was one of the select individuals that Jesus appeared to. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Listen to this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. How can his resurrection not be real? Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the other apostles. Eventually, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem after the departure of Peter. We see this in Acts 12. In front of you is a three-week-old picture of the city of Jerusalem. If you notice, right at the middle of that picture is the wall that protected the city of Jerusalem. Just inside of that wall is the city of Jerusalem. James was one of the spokesmen at the Council of Jerusalem. And after God had called the Apostle Paul to be the Apostle to the Gentiles, he went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas, but he saw none of the other disciples except James, the Lord's brother. Galatians 1.19 The Apostle Paul reported to James about his missionary experiences. That's who wrote the book of James the Apostle Paul referred to James as one of the church pillars. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. And according to Jewish and Christian traditions, James' wise leadership of the church of Jerusalem earned him the title James the Just. That's who he is, James the Just. It's been said that James was known as James the Just because of his devotion to righteousness, 
which marks how he writes the book of James. James was known for his extraordinary godliness. He was known for his zeal for obedience to the law of God. He was known for his singular devotion to prayer. It's been said that James the just had knees of a camel. Meet Sam. Sam lives and works in the old city of Jericho. In fact, to the left of where Sam is standing are the excavated walls of the city of Jericho. And just a stone's throw from where Sam is standing is the, the, the little stream that Elijah healed because the inhabitants of that country said the land was good, but the water was not. Sam's job is to take tourists for a ride on his back for $5 each. Each ride, he has to get down on his knees so that the riders can get on his back. Every day, day in and day out, Sam can be seen kneeling down each time before he serves his master. You should have seen the calluses on Sam's knees. The author... James the Just had knees like Sam because of his singular devotion to prayer. Let me ask you this, church. Literally or figuratively, how are your knees? How are your knees? Most Bible scholars would say that the book of James was written in 44 A.D., or they would say that it was written um, during the mid to late 40s A.D. If this is true, then it places the time that the book of James was written right at the beginning of persecution. And if that date is true and accurate, then James is the earliest New Testament book. James is said to be martyred in AD 62. And so how did he die? In Fox's book of martyrs, tradition tells us two different stories of how James died. According to Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, the the high priest Ananus ordered James to be killed by stoning. According to 3rd century Christian historian Eusebius, James was cast down from the temple tower. Someone once told me that being thrown down and being stoned were two of the same things. While we were in Jerusalem, we looked at one of the potential temple towers, which was the highest point where Jesus was tempted to, to throw himself down. This was James, point number two, the audience. So who was James writing to? Who were the original readers of the letter of James? 
if we examine the content of his book, the content suggests that the original recipients of the letters were the Jewish Christians. And so for the sake of definition, who are the Jewish Christians? Well, they're probably devout Jews, devout, God-fearing Jews who came to Jerusalem during the Feast of Pentecost, heard the gospel, experienced the gift of conversion and regeneration, and then returned to their place of residence. And those who stayed in Jerusalem were persecuted and driven away after the death of Stephen. We see this in Acts 8 and Acts 11. James was writing to these Jewish Christians. The book of James is said to be the most Jewish of all the New Testament epistles. This is evident in verse 1. Verse 1 says, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Now that, to us today, doesn't really mean a whole lot, does it? But to the original readers, that the twelve tribes in the dispersion would have evoked the old story of Israel. The twelve tribes originally referred to the twelve tribes of Israel. The term dispersion refers to the term diaspora, which originally referred to the Jews who were who were scattered at exile throughout the Near East and then later to Europe and then to Africa. You see, in the Old Testament, the first dispersion happened after Israel was conquered by Syria and 10 tribes were deported or dispersed out of Israel by Syria. Later, the Babylonians conquered Judah and exiled the two remaining tribes out of Israel. Now, in the New Testament, the second dispersion happened after the death of Stephen when Christian persecution began. And because of the persecution, Jewish Christians were scattered and lived outside the, 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 the place of Judea. It is these Jewish Christians that James was seeking to address. Nowhere in James' letter does it indicate that he was addressing Gentile Christians too. But more than likely, this, his letter um, probably addressed Jew, uh, Gentile Christians as well. So what's the big deal about the first dispersion and the second dispersion? Here's the big deal. This is why the book of James is important to us. The first dispersion was an act of judgment because of Israel's disobedience. The second dispersion was the means by which God is blessing the nations with the gospel. Listen to this. Acts 8, verse 1 and 4. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. Stephen's stoning execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Listen to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching 
the word. James was writing to these Jewish Christians to encourage them, to challenge them to faithful living in the midst of the influence of the world and worldly living. And by God's grace, because of these Jewish Christians that were dispersed, the gospel made it to us. The gospel made it to us. Now it's up to us, Trinity Community Church, to carry the gospel into our communities, our town, our cities, our state, our nation, our world. The letter of James was a circular letter that was meant to be read by many congregations. It wasn't a letter that was just meant for the congregation in Ephesus. It wasn't just a letter that Paul wrote to the, to the congregation in Corinth. It's possible that some of the recipients of James' letter were former members of the Jerusalem church. James refers to the audience as brothers 15 times in 108 verses. James writes with a strong pastoral counsel to a flock who was scattered throughout the Roman world, who were now experiencing trials and persecution and the influence of the world. That's who he was writing to. Point number three. So why did James write this letter? James, through his letter, is calling the depressed or the dispersed Jewish Christians to live out their lives to a deep, sincere, and consistent faithfulness to God. And today, church, I want to appeal to you that God, through the book of James, is calling us to live out our lives in deep, sincere, and consistent faithfulness to God. James is calling us to live out our lives faithfully. That's consistent with the good news that we preach. Church, our lives cannot contradict the good news of the gospel. So James is calling us to live faithfully. We are to be Christians and we are to live our Christian lives where we live, where we play, where we shop, where we work. We are to be a doer of God's word, not just hearers of God's word. So why was James calling the dispersed Christians to a life of devotedness to God? Because some fell to a worldly lifestyle. You see, the church is to be set apart from the world. Unfortunately, in some cases, the church today doesn't look any different than the world. Let me ask you this, church. How do you live your lives or how are you living your lives in such a way that, it, that you stand out of this world, that you look differently than the world? James' strong pastoral concern for us today is that our faith must translate into our lives. 
we shouldn't tuck away our faith in order to blend in with everyone around us and the world. If our faith in Christ means anything, we will stand out. People will notice a difference. Genuine faith must be accompanied by a lifestyle that is consistent of someone who had been redeemed by a bloody cross. So why do some Christians look just like the world does in their living? You ever wonder that? It's because they have failed to put their faith into practice in how they live their lives. And the result of their worldly living, they became double-minded, wavering between God and the world. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Men, let that not be said of our leadership at home and our leadership at church. The book of James contains over 50 imperatives or commands and clauses in 108 verses. You see, James is not so much interested in theoretical knowledge as he is interested in godly behavior and godly living. James is more interested in action, not just mere belief. So James is after us today to live our lives by demonstrating through our actions to ourselves and to the watching world that our faith is indeed genuine. Point number four. My last point. Let's look at some practical applications that we'll see in the book of James. So what can we learn from the book of James? If the word of God has transforming power to change our lives, then in what ways can we expect God and his omnipotent power to change us? How can we look different than the world we live in? I want to answer that question for us. The book of James can be viewed as a collection of wisdom sayings. In fact, it can be said that the book of James is the Proverbs in the New Testament. It can be considered as a wisdom literature. And it can be best viewed as a series of brief sermons. James' teaching is mostly based on Jesus' teaching. You see, the book of James contains more than 20 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 in the book of Matthew. This picture shows part of the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. We were there. A church was built near that site, just above us where we were sitting, to commemorate this site as the site of the Sermon on the Mount. Whether that's tradition or fact, that's where they believe the Sermon on the Mount happened. You can see the background is the Sea of Galilee. 
This hillside takes on a shape of a natural amphitheater, and it's been tested that someone speaking at the bottom can be heard by over 5,000 people. James teaches on wisdom. Who needs wisdom these days? I do. I do. Not just mere knowledge, but the ability to live skillfully in light of that knowledge in every situation, especially in difficult situations. I hope that's what we'll get out of the book of James. Wisdom is needed for proper speech and godly living. Wisdom is needed to avoid relational conflicts. Who can use some of that wisdom? Who here is not involved in any form of a relationship, whether that's marital, familial, friendly relationships, or work relationships? My dog Toshi is in a relationship. (laughs) He relates to us, and we relate to him. And sometimes we do have conflict even. How much more? Between a husband and wife, parents and children, siblings, students in your school. James can teach us wisdom that helps curve our speech to avoid conflicts. James teaches us that this this wisdom is from above. James touches on conflicts and dissensions caused by a lack of self-control. Anybody ever struggle with self-control? Conflicts and dissensions caused by uncontrolled speech. Favoritism toward the wealthy. You see, as believers, we ought to love each other equally. We ought to love the poor just like God loves them. The same tongue that praises God this morning ought to not curse and discourage and hurt and bring down the spirit of someone. So how are you doing with your words today, church? Has your word been seasoned with gentleness and compassion and understanding and patience and humility and love? Or have they caused hurt, pain, tears, anger, dissensions, relational and spiritual death? James touches on the topic of wealth by warning believers not to put their confidence on their wealth, in their wealth. And so how is your theology of wealth this morning? Does your theology of wealth free you from the pursuit of wealth, or does it entrap you to pursue it? How does your theology of wealth define true wealth? How does your theology of wealth help you to know how to treat those who are in need? Or do you only associate with those who have the same economic status as you? 
James touches on the prayer of faith in difficult times and patience in suffering. How are you doing with your patience in the midst of your suffering? James can help us with that. How are you doing with being steadfast in your faith during difficult times? How is your theology of suffering or do you have a theology of suffering? I hope the book of James equips us to a healthy theology of suffering because it comes if it hasn't already. James touches on endurance, waiting, and submission to God. How is your endurance in this marathon race of life doing? How do you need to grow in endurance? I do. I need to know how to grow in endurance of this life. How can you be more patient in your waiting? Oh boy, when I order something in Amazon, I have to check, you know, the tracking, right? And it's supposed to be here Tuesday, and it's, it's still stuck in, in Washington uh, State. I can't wait for this thing to be here. On a more serious note, for those of you who are physically suffering, how are you doing with your patience and your waiting? About the topic of pride and submission to God. How can you appropriate grace and avoid being opposed by God? What about temptations? How are you doing resisting the devil's temptations? Do you know what to do when being tempted by the devil? The book of James will equip us to faithful daily living that is consistent with that faith in Christ Jesus that we proclaim. Jesus, or James, teaches on responding well through trials. How are you doing in your marriage or your relationship in general when things don't go quite well? How do you rightly understand the trials that you are going through? How is your theology of trials serving you through this life? James shows us how times of testing are good at showing whether our faith is true or false. True faith is patient when tested. It is constant and glorifying God. False faith wavers, is unstable in everything and fades away. Now, we're not talking about faith that has some unbelief in it like this morning. We're talking about false faith that is unstable in everything and that fades away. What kind of amb ambitions do you have? Do you have selfish ambition or ambitions or do you have godly ambitions? James will help us navigate through that. <laughs> What does godly ambition look like? In conclusion, church, we're going to dig deep 
into the book of James, into these things. And my hope is that as Christians, we will go against Christian nominalism. What do I mean by that? We will go against being Christian just by name, but, but we will, will, will live our lives producing good works for the glory of God, showing the world that our faith is true and genuine. We want to share our faith so that others can enter into the joy of our master, our Lord and Savior. God help us. Let us live our lives that's consistent with the one who's been redeemed by the bloody Savior on that bloody cross. If your faith is true and real, allow it to translate into how you live your lives and how you act and how you, you talk to everyone you meet. Church, let us reject worldly living. Let's glorify God with our lives. Let's pray. Worship team, will you please come? And let's stand, church, and let's sing to our Savior.